the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're looking at both the original book and the film adaptation of Emma Donoghue's Room. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole plot of Room. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not done so already, go away and watch or read it now, then come back to us afterwards. Are they gone? Right, on with the show. In April 2008, the world was horrified by the case of Joseph Fritzl, an Austrian man who held his own daughter captive in a basement for 24 years. Who can believe that beyond a hidden door here and down this corridor lay an unimaginable family secret? Elizabeth Fritzl and three of her seven children were held here, never glimpsing daylight. Elizabeth Fritzl's youngest child, Felix, spent his entire life in their basement prison, emerging at the age of five into a new world he knew nothing of. And as the story unfolded, Irish-Canadian author Emma Donoghue knew immediately what her next novel should be about. Amongst a bidding war for the rights to the book and rumours of a one million advance, some critics accused the author of cynicism, of cashing in on real-life tragedy. Donoghue was at pains to emphasise that the Fritzl case was merely the trigger for her entirely fictional story, saying... A lot of people made out I was writing this sinister, money-making book to exploit the grief of victims. I was thinking, it's not like that, but no one will know until they read it. Telling the story of five-year-old Jack and his beloved Ma, imprisoned in an 11-foot square room by Old Nick. Room largely silenced those critics as it enjoyed enormous acclaim. Including a shortlisting for the Man Booker Prize, it was a massive international bestseller too, fully justifying that rumoured advance a movie adaptation would surely follow. Well, Donahue certainly hoped so, as even before the book was published, she'd already started crafting a screenplay for it. This was at least partly to head off the possibility of some slick Hollywood screenwriter getting their hands on it. Donahue was determined that any movie adaptation of her book should be done right. It was a bold step for a writer with no screenplays to her name and a steep learning curve as she worked with director Lenny Abrahamson on later drafts and he convinced her to allow the actors more freedom to improvise. The collaborative business of film is one of wonderful novelty for me because when I'm writing fiction, it's just me alone with my words. So, you know, film is so wonderfully interactive and the way, you know, the actors threw in some of the best I'm lines. Sure. You had a few good ideas, you know. Um, Did I? Genius came from everywhere, you know. Upon the film's release, Donahue was rewarded with with an Oscar nomination, and the movie itself was festooned with awards, including further Oscar nominations for Best Picture and Best Director for Abrahamson. Good morning, Snake. Good morning, Rug. The performance of child actor Jacob Tremblay as Jack was widely praised, while Brie Larson as Ma walked away with the Best Actress Oscar, along with a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, a Screen Actors Guild Award, and an armful of other awards. And the Golden Globe goes to Brie Larson. The BAFTA goes to Brie Larson. Goes to Brie Larson. Brie Larson. The critics were equally impressed, with Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times calling it one of the best movies of the decade, and Peter Travers of Rolling Stone wrote, All you need to know is that the performances of Larson and Tremblay will blow you away. Tremblay is a child actor incapable of a false move, and Larson is magnificent. Where do we go when we're asleep? Right here in room. But dreams. 
we go to, into TV for dreaming? Mm -mm. We're never anywhere but here. So, does Room deserve all the critical adulation? Does the movie live up to the book? And does Donahue's screenplay prove once and for all that the best person to adapt a book for the big screen is the person from whose head the story emerged from in the first place? Later in the show, one member of the spoiler team will be taking a nostalgic look back at the room which played an important role in their life. But first, joining me here at the Siren FM studios to talk about the whole of Room is a man, although he is a brilliant poet, he's not yet topped the rhyme, boom, 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 I want you in my room. It's Andy Golding. <laughs> and someone that without a doubt has the Venger Boy's greatest hits, not on display, of course, but hidden away in a drawer. It's <laughs> Rachel Vernon. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hey. Okay. So, um, Room, and let's, uh, we'll, we'll go with the book first. Okay. And uh, who suggested this? I I'm going to ask who suggested Room. It was me. It was you, wasn't it? And uh, am I right in thinking that we talked about this before and we thought, well, hang on a minute, this is a, it's a bit of a sensitive subject. Can we make an entertaining radio programme about this? Rachel, can we? <laughs> well, entertaining, informative, interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, entertaining because, you know, it's interesting to listen to people talk about it. I'm not going to say it's going to be a barrel of laughs because it's not particularly that sort of story or book or whatever. However, there are light moments in the book and in the film and there is there were smiles to be had it's not all harrowing okay so uh well talk to me about the book uh, how did you how did you find out about it and what did you think to it i think when it came out i'd only just stopped being a bookseller so and it was getting i still get lots of recommendations from my bookselling friends i always listen to them because they're spot on mm -hmm. and they said to me you have to read this one this room it's really fantastic and i have to admit when i read what it was about from on the back i was reluctant because you know I'm emotionally available and yes. very sensitive. And I thought, do I really want to put myself through this? And then a friend said, it's written from the, the little boy's point of view, which makes it slightly less harsh. All right, okay, I'll do a paragraph test. I do a paragraph test on all the books I read. And I was in there. One paragraph, I was like, oh, this is really different. This is really interesting. I like this kid's voice. And that was it. I read it in I don't know, two sittings. I, I mean, I had to put it down because I had to sleep, but I didn't want to. <laughs> I just thought it was exceptional. Yes, we've heard this story before, actually, which is quite sad. We shouldn't have heard this story before, but we have. And I thought, well, what can we get from this that I haven't read in news reports and, and in newspapers? And actually, yeah, the point of view of the child. What a, what a really interesting perspective to come from. And it just absolutely, I just, I love them. I love Ma and I love Jack so much. They mean a lot to me, which is why, and I'm going to mention this, um, we always try not to talk about the films and the books that we're going to review before we review them. Obviously, Andy and I and, you know, Paul, we're all on Facebook together. We'll chat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I couldn't stop myself um, when I seen the film and, you know, when I reread re -read the book. I had to just quickly on Facebook and just say how much it moved me. And I know it's almost against the rules because Andy was going to see that. And Andy <laughs> posted, oh, I think we're going to have a very interesting discussion. Now, that always means that we're going to have a debate, which means we're going to have an argument. And I felt my heart actually drop. I thought, I really don't want him to not like this. This means too much to me. It's not like some like your heart where I really don't care that you don't like it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love Mar and Jack. I'm very protective of them. They're real. Okay, well, thanks for setting me up there, Rachel, perfectly with my next question. <laughs> Andy, <laughs> tread carefully. Several <laughs> cried. I, I love this book. <laughs> Are you just saying that? No, no. <laughs> just, just give me a second to hastily rewrite my notes. And I'll be with you. No, I did. I love this book. Like you, I was kind of, uh, I'd heard what it was about. So I was kind of in two minds about what to expect because I know there's a lot of sort of 
quite lurid sort of things about abduction out there, mainly in sort of like daytime TV movies uh, is, is one thing that seems to be obsessed with it. But this book is far more than it. And I, it's I, to me, I don't think it's really a book about abduction. I think that is that is the way in to explore these themes of perceptions of the world and and different perceptions of children and adults and and how you would you would see the world if you'd only known this this one thing. Uh, and actually, it completely confounded my expectations because when I when I sat down to read it, I thought that the entire book was going to be them stuck in the room, which is a much more sort of sensationalist way to go about it. But instead, it, it's, I mean, halfway through, they, they escape from the room. And for me, it then gets even more interesting and more involving. I mean, when, they, when they're in the room, I mean, it's about half the book they're, they're in the room for. And uh, when they're in there, I almost literally couldn't put the book down because, <laughs> weirdly, I felt like the whole time I wasn't reading it, they were still there yeah. and they were still living in this like isolation trap and things could happen to them, even though I wasn't reading the story. It wasn't like reading a normal book where you stop and the story stops. It was in my head. So mm-hmm. especially when they started to sort of making the, their attempt to escape, mm-hmm. I, I just, once that started up... I had to read that right through to the end. And bearing in mind that I thought they were going to be in there for the whole book, I didn't think it was going to go ahead. So I had all sorts of these awful things in, in mind that could happen. I'd, I, like you, I cared about them. I think the the voice of the child brings you so close to that child and it's so brilliantly done. I mean, I know a lot of people have kind of written it off as a gimmick, but it's it's not a gimmick at all. To me, a gimmick is something that you put in there in lieu of any depth or anything. You've got you've got nothing else, so you put something to grab their attention. Whereas this actually makes it f- a far harder book to write. Doing it from Jack, the little boy's the only five year old boy, his his point of view, it makes it so much more difficult to write, but so much easier to take as a reader as well. Even though you know the same things are going on, if we were reading this narrated from Mars' point of view, it would be a hell of a lot more difficult to not make it lurid like those those TV movies. And so I think she's done a fantastic job mm. of, of writing it, and I loved it. I'm so pleased. <laughs> it's really like somebody's just said, I really like your son. <laughs> it's really weird. It's like, I'm so pleased. Because <laughs> It is, it is weird. I'm sure you feel this too. I mean, you said that you love them as well. The characters and especially Jack, you feel so much for them. And you're so right. That feeling of, I can't put the book down because they'll be on their own. Yeah. At least I'm. if I'm here, then I'm looking after them and I can help them through it somehow. And it's, I need to be a witness to this because nobody else is witnessing it. And yeah, I totally get that. You can't leave them on their own by, by shutting the book. That's wrong. And we clearly so, weren't the only people to feel that way either no. because... Emma Donahue got stacks of, of mail from people saying how much they loved Jack and he, mm. it wasn't I love the way you wrote him or the, no. it was I love Jack so yeah. she'd really made him a real person yeah, to them yeah he totally was and he was so bright and, and so full of life and so uplifted and just totally not what you'd expect you'd expect him to be very down and very pale and very yeah. sickly and all those things that you'd project and prejudge of oh, this is how he's going to be because she was so young when she had him um, but she's actually a fantastic mother and yeah. she's put him up really well. And and he's, you find so much joy in life and in the little things like the egg snake under the bed. Yeah. And, and he calls, I love the fact that he calls the sink, sink, 
and the rug, rug. Yeah, and, and the room, room. Room, yeah. and they have gender, like the rug is female. Yeah. And, and I think that's just so wonderful that he's given life, so he has all these friends well, around I think him. That's really crucial as well, because mm. to me, room is a character in this yes. book. And when we leave room, mm. it's still there the yeah. whole time in his head, and he's yeah. constantly thinking back to it. And it's not that he, he misses a place. He misses... It, it's, he actually thinks of them as friends, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. So room isn't just like a, a safe shelter to him. Mm. It's it's actually a person. Yeah, it's family. It's the only family he, he's ever known. And it's it's really deeply moving. Yeah. Even even the lamp. You, you start feeling for them. You start feeling for the rug. I yeah. love the rug. <laughs> oh, well, well, later on in yeah. the book, he gets it back, doesn't he? The, yeah. the things that were left in room, some of the things get sent to him. And yeah. he opens the box and he's like, it's rug. Yeah. And it is like reading like a reunion yeah, moment, is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now, I went about this all wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring in uh, my excuses. I've been on holiday um, and room is not holiday reading for me it might be for someone i don't know it may well be i don't know if you you know if you need to escape from a, a beach or whatever i don't know <laughs> i went hiking in germany but it it's, it's so i didn't take it away with me um and i thought well obviously what i'll do you know I, I, i'm a, a penchant for the old audio book um I'll, uh, I'll i'll catch up with that um and it turned out that i ended up watching the film first and we'll get to how i watched how just even how i watched the film with this is, is just peculiar and different. Everything for me about this experience has been peculiar and different. <laughs> um, I downloaded it and I'd seen criticisms of, of uh, not necessarily of the, the child actor that reads the, that reads it, uh, but just the fact that it was a, a child's voice for that long is quite difficult to do. And then this, this, this is for me highlights the difference between putting a voice in your own head and reading that and giving it your own voice, your own child's voice in your own head and, you know, uh, and putting those layers in there to actually listening to a child for 10 hours. And um, and also, I think one of the things that you mentioned to me, I think it was Rachel, about them using the adult voices to, to, to bring those in as well. Grandma's finding a big box of Legos in the basement that belongs to Paul and Ma. What would you like to make? A house? A skyscraper? Maybe a town? Might want to lower your sights a little. Says Steppa behind his newspaper. There's so many tiny pieces, all colors. It's like a soup. Well, go wild. I've got ironing to do. I look at the Legos, but I don't touch in case I break them. After a minute, Steppa puts his paper down. I haven't done this in too long. He starts grabbing pieces just anyhow and squishing them together so they stick. Why you haven't... Good question, Jack. Did you play Lego with your kids? I don't have any kids. How come? Steppa shrugs. It just never happened. I watch his hands. They're lumpy but clever. For me, it just it, it it didn't work. But for reasons we'll get to later as well, it's just I didn't I did also didn't particularly want to go through the experience mm. again just now, just you know, just so yeah. just so quickly. Um, so there you go. There's my excuse. <laughs> my, my, Valid excuse. My excuse is on the table. But also, yeah, actually, I mean, listening to a child's voice for me, this is no professional criticism of of, of the actor involved or even the directors involved. It, it, it's really quite well done, but it's just, it's not for me and not on, you know, and, and not on this subject. And it's, yeah. 10 hours is a long time. Yeah. Long time. yeah. <laughs> well, I think you need to read it because there's actually a lot of the story that you, you don't know, mm. which is a shame because it's not in the film. Yeah. Um, her brother and his wife and their small child, not in the film. And um, and actually the, the dynamics between um, the, the grandmother and Jack's quite different in the book. 
and what happens to them afterwards and actually Mars less in it um, in, the, in the second half. She's hardly in it at all. So it's quite a different story. Yeah. And I think it's well worth you reading the book, even while it's still fresh in your mind, um, just to see how it is, considering the screenplay is written by the same person, Yeah, how she's edited out things that she feels, actually, I want the story to be about the bond between a mother and a son rather than what happens to a, to a boy when he gets out into into the world because he's actually less it's less about his perception and more about the bond but it, you can't get that unless you read the book so mm. well it, it, therefore is is the screenplay best written if possible by by the author you know because they've oh. gone they've gone through it once haven't they and then well they'll well, they'll get to the they'll get to the end of that and think oh there were things I could have done there and they mm. can actually do it for the film then surely I think I can understand why Emma Donner you went I'm writing this mm. keep your hands because, off it. <laughs> yeah well. I love Mara and Jack like they're my own. Mm-hmm. She must really feel like they're her own because they are. They are her, you know, her her babies, and I won't want them in anybody else's hands to write a screenplay around them. Mm. No way, because it's you know it's their heart and their their lives that you're describing. So you know if you're going to cut out a brother and a wife and a child, then I'll do that. Nobody else, thank you very much. And um, so I can see why she did that, and I think it's so impressive that the very first screenplay she ever wrote was Oscar nominated. That was a either a hell of a bit of luck or a stroke of genius I don't know that's yeah, incredible she was obviously very close close mm. to the characters as well because I read that she even went to the extent that she rolled one of her kids up in a room oh. to test <laughs> really? the, the wiggling out thing oh, if it wow. worked it, he was very upset and she oh. bribed him with chocolate to get him back in the rug again <laughs> so you can wiggle out of a rug <laughs> yeah, apparently so I'm trying to think if we've got any rugs at home <laughs> Actually, one thing we should we should probably touch on that uh, it's very briefly mentioned in the film, but it's quite central in the book. Paul, which we missed, is breastfeeding. Mm. In in the book, uh, Mar breastfeeds Jack still when he's he's five years old because he, they've been in room together. There's been well, I think at one point she says that there was no reason to stop, mm. but I think that that's sort of a, it's very realistic. I think in that. In that case, you would have none of those sort of societal expectations, and you would do that. You'd, mm. You're that close, and you're that that mm. it, it would it would carry on, and then this becomes a sort of symbol as as they leave room, and uh, slowly he's kind of winged off it, isn't he? And mm. there's there's a lot of kind of uh, there's moments when when people sort of frown on it, and uh, Emma Donahue said that when she got letters, the major sort of uh, negative ones were people asking her to justify how she could have Ma still breastfeeding Jack. I mean, the other one, the other major complaints was even more ridiculous. It was people complaining about Jack's bad grammar. <laughs> what? He's a five-year-old boy. Oh, wow. a, that, I thought that that's perfectly done. That's it. <laughs> she she gets it just right, mm. but. Who is reading that and, and and writing in and saying, I think you'll find that's the you with apostrophe R in <laughs> Jack. You may be five, but I don't care. Oh, my goodness. Blimey, I'm 39 and it's still not there. <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean about the breastfeeding thing because he mentions it a lot. Yeah. And, it's, I mean, and he mentions the right and the left and which one's better and that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and have it's, some because it's an Yeah, have, have, have some. some. Yeah. And um, when, when they're apart in the book, he, he thinks about it quite a bit. And um, when they finally get back together, because they've been apart for so long, she's dried up, she can't do it anymore. And it is that final break. But, you know, he's not a baby anymore. And um, it's really important. In the book, it's a real moment of, you can't anymore. But in the film, it very much had to go, I think. You couldn't have done it, could you? I imagine it probably was in the original screenplay a bit more, but she was probably 
shattered down on it, I should, yeah. should have thought. I mean, you do see him breastfeed a couple of times, but it's not really it's, highlighted, is no. it? No, and I think it would have it would have given it, it would have dragged sort of the, people would have made too much of it, as they yeah. did in the book. Yeah, that's true. They would have made too much of it in the film. It probably would have ended up overshadowing yeah. things in the film. But there's a lovely bit in the book, uh, the bit where Ma is interviewed for TV, and the, the uh, interviewer says to her, well, it's... It's very, it's very strange that you're still breastfeeding him, and she says, "Yeah, that's what's strange about this whole situation." Yes, yeah, <laughs> and that was one of my favourite bits in the book. Yeah. And I thought, if I was Dermot Donahue and I got those letters from people, mm. I would just send back a highlighted copy of the book with that yeah, that moment. And uh, so... That's the thing you choose to take from this, <laughs> yeah. right? Okay. Later, Andy will be taking a look back at a room which played an important part in his life, and we'll be turning our attention to the 2015 film adaptation of Room. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more and help us keep supplied with coffee and cake, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including other books by Emma Donoghue, such as Hood and Frog Music. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with darts to throw at anyone who uses the phrase Netflix and chill. (laughs) Now, back to the show. I think I'm never going to switch off. So welcome back to Spoiler, where we're discussing the book and the film of Emma Donoghue's Room. Uh, Okay, so time now to turn our attention... uh, to the film and actually I'm going to start with me (laughs) (laughs) why not why wouldn't I (laughs) darling darling it's all about me (laughs) so the the way I watched this film and I I toyed around with talking about it earlier the way I watched this film was I I was tense I was very tense and I, I, I do regret I do regret not reading the book first I suppose if only to be able to say oh the book was better <laughs> but also, I had preconceptions about what it was going to be about, and uh, and I suppose harrowing. I thought I, I was expecting to watch something harrowing, so I kind of put this off and put it off. <laughs> and I, 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 the first half of the film, I watched sometimes skipping bits. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Odd, odd, very odd. I've never done this before. And it's it's a way of being uh, nervous and, and dealing with a situation that I've, I'm, I'm perhaps uncomfortable with because it, I was worried and always with the intention of going back because I knew, I, had to, I knew we had to talk about it. I knew we had to review this. Um, and I, I need to explain something here. And I, I realise I'm taking up a bit of time and very much skirting around the edges. But if if I watch a film and it can be, even be a comedy film uh, where usually someone's in a room and they're searching through, let's say, a filing cabinet with a torch. So you, you get the idea of where I'm coming from here. I get so nervous. It 
it really freaks me out. I can't, I can't bear it. I can't watch it almost. And quite often, again, if I'm on my own there, I'll just skip past it, waiting for the inevitable security guard to come and then, you know, fight to go. It just makes me... It, this, it makes me anxious. There we go. There's the word I've been grasping around for. It gives me anxiety. And so th- there are times in this, and certainly with the escape, um, I jumped past the escape uh, quite in a big way. And then at the end of the film, I came back and watched it and marveled at it and saw how wonderful it was. And even now, sat here, I'm thinking what a puzzling person I am because it's how could I have done that? How could I have watched the second half of that film without going through that middle part of the film, which was so brilliantly done? Um, and then I get, when, I, when I did go back to it, I watched it through a couple of times because it was so brilliantly done. But also, actually, again, in my head, like you, Andy, I had this vision that this whole thing was all done in one room and that kind of thing. Yeah. So the brilliance of it, to be able to escape halfway through, was was well fantastic because I wasn't expecting it. You're thinking, well, you know, I'm looking down at the screen and all the time I've been skipping about on my little tablet and thinking, oh, hang on, no, 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 they can't escape now, and go back <laughs> because it's just that's not what happens, is it? It's just not what happens. But actually, no, it does. <laughs> they, they do, and this is this this is what they did. Then, of course, it just becomes the second half of the film. Uh, Notably, straight away, you note that they come out of one room, they're trapped in another room, they can't leave, mm-hmm. uh, and they're, they're trapped in a house that they can't leave because the press are outside and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And just, you know, there's so many layers, you mm-hmm. know, so, so there's, there's, so much, there's so much to be found uh, in this film, I think, uh, which I wasn't expecting uh, and wasn't able to go through. And sooner or later, I will watch it all the way through <laughs> in one go. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not making any apologies for, 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 for what happened. And I'm as puzzled by it now as I as I sit here in front of you, but it's, it's, you've never done that, have you, Andy? No. No, no of course no, not. Of course not. <laughs> I, I have. Have you? Yeah, I get really anxious sometimes. Yeah. And I'm just really glad I read the book first and so I knew what was happening because every, um, I would have been like you, I'd have been watching it like gripping hold of something because yeah. you don't know when old Nick's going to come in the door either. Mm-hmm. And it, as soon as you say the beep, beep, beep of him coming in, shuffle this bit. Mm. And, and then the, oh my goodness, the escape. The escape part of it. My housemate, he 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 said he'd never been so tense in all his life. He was so tense, and he said, "I don't think I breathed for about two minutes." <laughs> mm. It's so tense, and he said, "If I could have afforded that to know that he was okay, I would have." Mm. I did. And it's just <laughs> you want to get to where they're okay. Yeah. I think it's just that natural human instinct of I can't stand them being in this much peril. I need them to be okay, mm. and so. Where can I find a bit where they're obviously okay? And um, obviously you didn't even know there was going to be a bit where they're okay. (laughs) So even worse, at least Andy and I knew going into the film that there was going to be a point where they were going to get out. But I think I'm glad that you went back because I think the first half of the film and the first half of the book is surprisingly gentle actually, for for when Jack and Mara are together, just the two of them. Yeah. And I know there's an awful bit when she's, well, he says she's gone because she's just, you can see she's just overwhelmed with it all every now and then she mm-hmm. just tunes out. But even then he just cracks on and he just kind of, he makes a little play with something and mm-hmm. plays with his friend's rug and sink and lamp and everything else. And he's just such an amazing character, such an incredible human being that it's just a joy to watch him and especially Jacob Tremblay. Oh my goodness! They couldn't have cast anybody better. He was just so—he was so wonderful, he wasn't was he? He was Jack. It absolutely was Jack. And um, and having already been in love with Jack from the book, I was really worried about who they cast as him. Because I thought, oh God, if it's some irritating, <laughs> but, you know. But he was just so soulful, and I just fell in love with him properly. You know, I felt for him. So I, I say, I enjoyed watching the first half of the film. I think that's wrong, but I enjoyed watching him. 
and seeing the joy that he found in small things and watching him and his ma playing silly games and running from one side of the room to the other side of the room to the other side of the room. There was magic in that. There was there was beauty in that. That wasn't it wasn't so harrowing as it could have been if we'd seen it all from Ma's point of view, because she would have been playing these lovely games with her son, but waiting for the night time when she Mm -hmm. didn't know if old Nick was going to come or not. And, you know, we didn't have to experience that so much because we were in the wardrobe with Jack. Mm. We could almost pretend it wasn't happening, even though we kind of knew it was. Yeah. So now I'm really glad you went back and, and watched it because you missed out on a lot by not watching yeah. that first bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny now. It's, I, I, I regret it. And as I sit here now, I think I'm probably everything that's wrong with the, 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 age, <laughs> the age of being able to skip through things. Um, and But but it is, it is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you did it for the right reasons. Yeah, like yeah, you weren't yeah. just thinking, it's oh, not, I'm bored. I'm, no, yeah. no, 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 absolutely no. It's because I was, I was you know, I was on, I was on side. And, uh, you know, you, you're exactly right, Rachel. Those scenes of them, uh, you know, sort of bonding... Uh, they, they they do something instantly, and you just think, oh my god, you want this to be okay, mm. um, you know? Which I, you know, could it ever be, you know? But it's it's just uh, yeah yeah very peculiar. But the the set and the, and just the way it was filmed as well, and they filmed this in the room as well, didn't they? Because mm. at times I was thinking, well, to make it okay in my mind, I was thinking, uh, well, they did they must have done this like maybe when they filmed, uh, well, maybe when they filmed Buried or something like that, where they, you know, they, it's a section or something's cut out or it's a studio, but doors are off and this kind of thing. But no, actually, it was done in 11-11 room mm. uh, and with with um, Abrahamson, you know, being in the bath at times because it was yeah. the only place out, out, out of the way. And it just, uh, I think that, that must have added to the, mm. the achievement they had. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Andy, how about Brie Larson? Oh, truth, yes. absolutely fantastic. I should say before I go any further that uh, I was a little bit disappointed with this film. I loved the first half of it, but the second half, I'm not so hot on. But I mean, one thing that I'm not going to fault at all is the acting across the board. I think Brie Larson absolutely deserved her Oscar. I think it's an outrage that Jacob Tremblay wasn't nominated and for an Oscar and not a best supporting actor Oscar a best actor Oscar it tends to be whenever there's a great child performance even if they're clearly the lead because they're a kid they get best supporting actor and it's happened again and again Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon won and she's on screen all the time as much as Ryan O'Neill and and yet she got supporting actor Mary Badham in To Kill a Mockingbird is the same. But Leo was always going to get it, wasn't he? <laughs> anyway, you know, he was, yeah, he was yeah. always going to get it. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. But I think some recognition of Jacob's accomplishment would have been really yeah, good. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, he did carry the film. He was in every single scene. And such a mature and soulful, I've said that before already about him, but soulful. You know, his eyes, it wasn't just, somebody said to me, oh, he's a child, he's just parroting. No, he's not. No, it's in his no. eyes. It's in his no. movements when he's laid in that truck, when he's just wiggled himself out of rug. And that sort of wonderment and fear and there's so much going on inside that kid's head. He did that. Nobody can teach him that. And I just thought, he needs an Oscar for that moment. Yeah. I so, completely yeah, I totally agree. agree. And I, I love the way uh, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay played off each other. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe one of the disappointments of the second half of the film for me was that they're not together as much. Mm. And in that first hour, for the most part, it's those two holding the screen and they're, they're fantastic together. But I mean, he, like all all the other roles as well. I mean, Joan Allen uh, mm. as as the uh, grandmother. Yeah, she's is, wonderful. She, yeah. She's completely different character, really, from the, the one in the book. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, but she's fantastic. William H Macy, who has what is practically amounts to a cameo in this, and yet 
for the time he's on the screen, it's fantastic. And th- this was the one one thing that I think was done better than was done in the book is the William H Macy scene because in in the book it's not around the dinner table. It's uh, it's at the independent living facility, isn't it? Mm. When Mars' father comes and then Jack just runs in and he immediately says, "Oh, I'm not ready for this. I can't look at him," and and just. Mm like says it outright to him yeah whereas to me it was more realistic that william h macy is there and he's trying but he just can't and i, I can mm. completely understand how he feels as well i mean i know that uh joy she's called in the film isn't she yeah. actually give her a name which is i think is necessary really isn't mm. it when she's yeah. uh, when you can see the whole family uh and joy is very angry with him about this but i mean this is his daughter and mm. when he looks at Jack obviously he's going to see everything that she's been through and yeah. him as a result of this and I think William H. Macy in the small amount of screen time he has plays it perfectly and it's more realistic that he he wouldn't just come out and say I can't look at him he's actually called on it mm. and is embarrassed and then just says can we talk about this tomorrow yeah, no I totally and, agree I think William H. Macy's just one of those very underrated actors. Yes. He's so subtle. And you could see that he didn't want to feel like that. The way he looked at his daughter was like, please don't hate me for this. But, you know, I look at him and all I can see is your rapist. Yeah. You know, and that is basically it. I mean, this is a father and and, her, and his daughter. And in the book as well, you, I don't think it's in the film, but in the book it's made clear that they've had a funeral for her. Yeah. Um, he's arranged that. They've had a funeral. He's moved to Australia. He's moved on. So there's going to be guilt from him as well. Oh, my God, I, I thought you were dead. How, why did I give up on you? So there's all this tumult of emotion going on inside of him. And somehow William H. Macy gets that across yeah. in about a minute. <laughs> and I think that's just incredible. You know, however many pages in a book and yet William H. Macy does a couple of looks on his face and you, you've got it. Mm. Just amazing. But for me, that ta- it tapped into one of the big themes of the book, which is adaptation and mm. ad- adapting to something. And I think... Given the time and the encouragement, he would have adapted to it and he would have accepted Jack, but he isn't given that and he, it's, it's snatched away from him and he leaves. And for me, this was this was the problem with the second half is that for me, this stuff, I mean, I'm not one of these people. I can, in fact, I can't stand those people who think that um, <laughs> all, all film adaptations should be just exact copies of the book. Like Peter Jackson makes three, four hour Lord of the Rings films mm-hmm. and people complain that Tom Bombadil wasn't in it. <laughs> yeah. Not only does it not have to be a carbon copy of the book, I don't think it should be. They're two very different mediums. Yeah. And But for me, this this whole story kind of lives and dies by its themes. And for me, the fascination is the is the perception and the adapting to the new the new surroundings and everything. And for me, it felt like they they kind of Emma Donoghue had dropped that. I think Jack adapts too quickly and we don't get all that sort of fascinating thing. I mean, it becomes, I think you were saying earlier, Rachel, she's made it more about a relationship between a mother and a, a son. But I mean, even that, it's pulled back from a little bit in the second half and it becomes, it becomes sort of about about Mars adapting and mm. a, a, a struggle to adapt but it's it wasn't it didn't feel psychologically taught as the book to me it felt like in in parts it felt like quite a hackneyed family drama that we've seen quite a lot of times before and so when we fi- got that final scene which is so effective in the book where they go back to room it didn't really mean anything to me in the film because we didn't get the sense that sense of Jack's attachment to Room and he's longing to go back. I think there's a, a couple of little hints. I think there's a moment where he makes Room out of Lego, mm. 
there's, there's mentions of it, but in, in the book, he's constantly sort of longing for room. And we get this sort of phased adaptation to the world as he comes out, because in, in the book, they move from room to an independent living facility first. And then that is where Mars suicide attempt happens. And that then is what takes Jack out to live with the, the grandparents. And that sort of, that gradual getting used to the world, I thought was beautifully done in the book. In the film, I felt it was it was trying to sort of, because they wanted to bring in more of the characters to, to fill it out a bit more, I think. They went for the family drama route and that, pushed it to a, a more cliche place that robbed it of a lot of its impact for me. Mm. Oh, I actually agree with that. And I think, much as I love the film, because Jacob was in it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's pretty much the reason why I loved it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And when I reread the book and I realised just how much more there was to it after they escaped, mm. especially for Jack, I think he was kind of, it was a bit of a disservice to him in the second half because... Yeah. There were moments where the mum and Ma were having arguments and debates and things and, and he was just there playing with his toys and I thought, well, he wouldn't just be sat there playing no. with his toys. He's really affected by this. And, you know, there's bits... I think him and his grandma got on famously straight away in the film, which was lovely and it made me cry. Yeah, yeah, I did cry. <laughs> yeah. that, the moment where he tells me he loves them. Oh, God, that don't. Was, oh, <laughs> my heart. Oh, <laughs> but that's the, the but stuff that's about he... kids does that to me. It's, yeah. I can't help it. I don't know. Oh, it's just so moving. <laughs> but that doesn't happen in the book. You know, the grandma actually struggles. You know, much as she's yeah. much more on it than Joy's father is, she's not so completely, I'm okay with this yeah. and I'm just going to embrace this boy and hold him to my heart. She's not. She struggles because he's different because he does weird things that normal kids don't do. Yeah. And it frustrates her and it angers her and she does have a go at him and there is anger between them and he doesn't always love her. It's all a bit too chocolate boxy and yeah. you know, the love of a grandma is a beautiful thing, which it is, but it's like, yeah, but they're still going to struggle. And... I think there was something missed by not having her brother and his wife and the small uh, their small little girl because what you get with that they go to um you'll read this in the book when you get there they go to a shopping mall with Jack because um Mars in hospital having done the suicide attempt and so um they're trying to integrate Jack into the real world and this the brother and his wife they've got the most obnoxious child <laughs> she's awful <laughs> and um and she wants everything she she is the antithesis of jack she wants she's materialistic and she's very much a product of her time mm. and that sort of juxtaposition of the two characters is really clever because you can see how completely different um I was going to call him Jacob. <laughs> Jack is to a normal child of around about his age. And they really, they can't get on with him, can they? No. He's a real struggle to get on with. And you don't get that in the film. You think he's this perfect child that never kicks up a stink and is really easy to live with. He's tough to live with because he's so different. So I'd like to have seen more of that. But I do wonder how long this film would have been. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm. I can see they, why they, they cut they them out. They had to pick a theme. And I think they picked the theme as chocolate boxy and family ties as it is of love and bond and family and that's what comes across in that second half is the redemptive qualities of being in a family you know stepper the stepper oh, he's, well, he's fantastic, so lovely isn't he? and with his dog uh, and, tom, uh, tom mccamus uh, he was he great mccamus mccamu i don't know i'm not sure <laughs> he's brilliant lovely understated part and he's the same in the book and um and that sort of opening your heart to something will get you through i think it was meant to be this hopeful uplifting kind of you know, let's not focus on the struggle so much as how redemptive familial love can be. And I think that's what they went for. But then did you feel when they went back to room at the end, did you feel almost why bring that back in again? That's the great ending for the, mm. the book, but 
but it's almost like it had been yeah, erased from the themes that. and the the point. I mean, it, it felt almost like the film shouldn't have even been called Room. It should have been called Jack if that, <laughs> yeah. if that hadn't already been taken by yeah. a terrible Robin Williams film. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I wanted that scene because that was an amazing scene in the book. It was, but and it, it felt like it had been robbed of... Of most kind of its of. impact, did you not? Yeah, I don't know. I still cried <laughs> um, because it's Jacob doing his but thing. And I, I thought it was. I thought it was a good scene, and and that's where the room, where you were talking about the room being a character. I thought the room was a character here. It had lost, it had lost everything. It had lost yeah. its, its charm that it had held for a five-year-old boy, but also it had lost its the security and the things that had kept people in there. Um, and it just looked cold. It's like if you it, it's, when you move house and you take all your things out of it. Uh, and that's exactly that's exactly what it was like, you know. It's, it's sort of uh, cold and, and 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 shallow, but still a resemblance, still yeah. something something there that's that's making you you know bring back memories and thinking, well, how could we even have a sofa in here, you know, and that kind of thing. <laughs> it was uh, yeah yeah. I I I didn't. It's, I know it's funny because I didn't want it to happen again. A bit of anxiety crept in, mm. and I didn't know what. No no, you can't want to go back there. But of course he does. You know, it's completely understandable, um, and it's it's the perfect thing to move on. But it's it's just no, don't do that. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, they're there. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much more powerful, I felt, in the book, though. I mean, it has a a much stronger effect on on Marsh. He kind of just Mm. strolls in there, and I think she even asks if he wants to shut the door in in the film, whereas in the book she says, don't shut Mm. the door, and Mm. she she vomits, doesn't she, on the way and Mm. everything. And Jack is, is so consistently, the whole time he's been out of room, he's been gradually looking back on it and talking about how he misses it and, and saying he wants to go back there, that I felt that in, in the book, it felt like almost like some a person you know, but they you lost them to dementia and it, you couldn't see the person in there anymore. And for me, that mm. was... It was it was more like that with I mean not that Jack has that sort of level of understanding but he he can see that it, it sort of resembles something he knows but it isn't anymore yeah. and so that hit me on. quite hard when I read the book mm-hmm. so when I watched it in the film I didn't get any of that so I'm I, I mean I'm not going to say even though I was disappointed by the second half I'm not going to say I was unmoved by it entirely but that crucial last scene mm. I just felt had lost so much of its significance. Mm. And that that affected the film quite a lot for me. When I walked away from it at the end, I, I just felt it it knocked. I mean, if we, if I was going to do a star rating of it, it lost at least a star just in that. Wow. We leave we leave the stars to other shows, Andy. <laughs> Andy, don't we have our own rating system? <laughs> okay, now uh, for something a little different for us here on Spoiler. Inspired by the concept of room, Andy's found himself reminiscing about a room which played a big part in his life. Recently, I decided it was time to sell my large CD collection. As a long-term physical format fetishist, this is something I always swore I'd never do, but progress eventually catches up with everyone, and with my iPod overflowing with songs, the long-untouched CDs were doing little more than taking up valuable space. However, as I began typing out their barcodes for valuation, each album seemed to trigger a different memory as it passed through my hands and into the box that would finally take it out of my life forever. Although each memory took me to a different time in my existence, every one of them took me to the same room. The bedroom in my family's bungalow in Fiskerton, which I shared with my brother Adam until he left home in his early twenties. I know what you're thinking. Two young boys taking their first tentative steps towards manhood sharing a bedroom? You must have been at each other's throats all the time. In fact, quite the opposite was true. And, while there was the odd raised voice or errant slipper launched as a face-seeking missile... 
Sharing a room with my brother was one of the things that most contributed to my youth being such a happy time. We shared more than a bedroom. We shared a CD collection, a sense of humour, and ultimately, a childhood. All of which made it that little bit harder to continue typing those barcodes out. I mean, how can you put a valuation on that? Our bedroom began life neatly divided into two halves, my side papered with Garfield posters and Adam's a shrine to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But the minute we discovered music, cynical orange cats and heroes in a half shell lost the fight for wall space and the Beatles became our chosen concealers of blue tack inflected paintwork mutilations. It was still a few years before we'd own a CD player, so we listened to the Fab Four through the glorious crackle hiss of our parents' old vinyl, and then the wobbly gurgles of an old tape player, in constant terror that the cassette might suddenly unspool out the sides of the tape deck, like vomit escaping from a helpless mouth at full capacity. We had little to no interest in modern music at this time, instead listening to Chuck Berry, Little Richard and Fats Domino on old rock and roll tapes we'd snagged out of supermarket bargain bins. But all that was about to change as our early teens coincided with the birth of Britpop. Although in retrospect it is easy to smirk at its derivative brassy sound, Britpop was the first music that felt like it truly belonged to us, and as our tastes changed, our bedroom changed around us. John, Paul, George and Ringo were pulled down, along with more chunks of wall, and replaced by the Gallagher brothers, Paul Weller, Suede and Super Furry Animals. No guitar band was too terrible for us to enthuse over, and for a couple of years I slept under a giant menswear poster, quite literally on the hot summer night when it detached itself from the wall. Breathe deeper, daydreamer. The most important new addition to the room is a stereo so large it should have had Stobart written on the front of it. While other pieces of furniture came and went, this immense music centre remained the focal point of our room and one of the main reasons we spent increasing amounts of time in there. After school, we would while away the evenings listening to Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley's evening session, holding down record and play simultaneously on the tape player if a good song came on. Every little bit of money we could scrape together went towards swelling our rapidly increasing album collection. Adam would mow lawns for a tenor, which he immediately exchanged for Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern or the Blue Tones Expecting to Fly. Birthdays and Christmases became defined by presents that were all little five-inch squares. Mum's wrapping sessions became significantly easier as a result. Teenage years seem like a blast when you look back on them, but we often conveniently forget the havoc hormones can play with your head and heart, and though we write it off as trivial in comparison to adult concerns, who doesn't remember having their heart broken for the first time and wondering whether things will ever feel the same again? I certainly remember my own introduction to emotional agony and also the recognition of witnessing that same look of wounded desperation in my brother's eyes. Unlike chipped paintwork, you can't just paper over those cracks and a shared bedroom became even more of a blessing as whispered late-night conversations turned to matters of the heart and wounded hearts were soothed by the balm of brotherhood. As life becomes more complex, musical tastes follow suit. Mockney's singing about park life simply won't do when your nervous system is trying to eject your heart from your body by any orifice available. And so we delved into the musical past and added the likes of Morrissey, Ian Curtis and Michael Stipe to our now overcrowded CD racks. 
Though we both took an interest in each other's purchases, we began to plough our own distinct furrows, with Adam finding kindred spirits for his growing sensitivity in introspective singer-songwriters, while I played the angry young man and amassed a large collection of punk albums. With Adam strumming his acoustic in one corner and me gobbing on pictures of the royal family in the other, our bedroom became a powder keg of raw emotion, and because this was our space and no one else's, we were liberated to light the fuse whenever we needed. Sometimes the resulting explosion was a prolonged series of diaphragmatic sobs soundtracked by Everybody Hurts, while at other times we shoved the futon back and leapt around cathartically to the clash. Years passed, hearts mended, then broke again, then mended again, resilient little muscles that they are. When my brother announced he was moving to Nottingham, you may imagine we had a big final night of music and merriment to toast our long years as devoted roomies, but life rarely works like that, and it wasn't until long after he'd left that I realised the room I slept in was no longer the same. It had once been our room, but it wasn't now my room so much as it was just a room. It served a practical purpose as far as sleeping and occasional privacy went, but I no longer felt moved to spend much time in there, choosing instead to go out drinking with friends or watch films and share a bottle of wine with my dad. The CD collection, in case you're wondering, had to be split two ways, and a long bartering session helped put a definite value on what had previously seemed priceless. Did you know, for instance, that one Stone Roses album is worth three fun-loving criminal CDs? Or that splitting up a David Bowie collection requires the leverage that only a rare Boo Radley's 12-inch can offer? Back in 2016, the computer screen I'm staring at puts a different price on those same CDs. 30p each. I look at the bulging box and then at my tiny little iPod, and I can hardly believe all that music is stored in there when it used to take the majority of a bedroom to contain it. And yes, there is a small tear in the corner of my eye as I contemplate shipping the soundtrack to those years off to a warehouse like the Ark of the Covenant. But really, those little five-inch squares mean nothing in and of themselves. And that room that Adam and I once referred to as our bedroom no longer exists in a physical format. Fortunately, I've downloaded the whole thing into my memory and can now access it wherever and whenever I want. Amazing what they can do with technology these days. Nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. Great stuff. Thank you, Andy. And um, now towards the ending, and do you know what? Because of the way I watched this film, it's funny when you talk about the final scenes of this, Andy, because I went back and watched The Escape again, that's still kind of the last thing on my mind. <laughs> just because it was just, I really, it was, it was, it was so well done. But I, I think you're going to find I'm going to, I'm going to steer this ship in a perfect course here because mm-hmm. actually that's where some films end, isn't it? You know, The yeah. Escape and... Mm. After that, you're left with the question that we always like to ask at this stage of a programme, what happened next? And, you know, generally the idea is that you would think, well, once someone's out of a terrible situation, they're going to live happily ever after. Now, the second half of this film shows that actually, no, you know, when you're released from a terrible situation, you've just got a pile more uh, loads of... um, I was going to swear then. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a lot of other stuff to deal with now. Mm. Um, And actually, a lot of that isn't very nice, you know, including, you know, TV people coming face-to-face with the real world and, and... and, and coping but I think towards the end of the film what what there are elements of what Andy said here that, that, that do ring true and 
uh, there's there's something to be to to be lost, obviously, between the uh, the, the book and and the film. But I, I, the one couple of little bits and bobs that are scattered about at the ending, like he's playing with a friend, and you think, well, you'd like to see him learn to play with a friend, or you know, yeah. rather than just go outside and kick a football at him. But I don't know. Maybe they maybe they're, they're granting us, you know, as as a as an educated adult audience um, to say, well, actually, you know that you know that that's had to happen. But then you know, there's only so much you can say. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no. Put some of it on screen, will you? <laughs> um, okay, so what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, it's funny. I think Emma Donoghue has been asked, hasn't she, from other other readers, what did happen next? Because mm. people are just so caught up with their story and we kind of don't want it to end. We want to make sure they're okay. Mm. And I think we know that there's going to be tough things still to come yeah. it's not it's not uh, say goodbye to room closure we're okay now mm-hmm. no definitely not Mars got a long way to go I can't even begin to imagine what I mean I know we, we've we've been given a taster of what she went through but to go through that long living in such fear and um and the guilt and the the tumult of emotion is just just unfathomable and she's got to live with that and nobody else will understand that ever Nobody else will be able to empathise completely with that unless she meets somebody else who's been in an abduction yeah. scenario. And um, the only person that gets it as, as much as she does or nearly there is Jack. Mm-hmm. And he's going to grow up and he's going to move on and he's going to get girlfriends and he's going to go to school and he's going to tell her he hates her and he wishes mm-hmm. he'd never been born and all this yeah. kind of, That will happen because he is a child and he will become a teenager. And that bond that they have it is so incredibly strong. She relies on that bond. It has saved her twice. And I worry, even though they're not real, I worry, <laughs> I worry about what will happen when he gets to 15, 16, 17, when he leaves home. Mm-hmm. I worry about her more than I worry about him. I think he's incredibly resilient. I think he's he's got an incredible heart and I think that's all down to her and how she's brought him up. But I worry about her. And those, well, those were the feelings I had when you you saw him off even in a, in a public playground. And, and you mm. first, my, there are the two parental instincts there. And one is like, oh, right, I'd be watching out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just more instinctive now. Yeah. Um, but also, oh, oh hang on. They're, they're, they're going, they're, you know, he's already, already, yeah, there's, you yeah. know, uh, they're, they're going and, and, and leaving you behind. And you think, well, oh, oh, yeah. oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's given. It's uh, the rating wise for us on this. I mean, it, 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 it's it's a given. Um, but um, I'm going. To, I'm just going to go simply uh, book or film, and I think I know which way, which way this is going for everyone. Uh, Andy, well, I, th- I think definitely the book, but I'm not. I'm not going to write the film off. I think the film has got all sorts of good stuff in there. It just didn't quite pull it together for me. Rachel, I'm going to say book and film. On the, on the same line because of Jacob Tremblay. <laughs> he is my Jack and and it's, it means so much to me. And it stayed with me, like, like the escape thing stayed with you. Mm-hmm. It's really stayed with me. So, um, yeah, and the music. Sorry, the soundtrack's amazing. <laughs> oh, we nearly, oh, wow. we nearly <laughs> got out. to get it in. <laughs> Stephen Rennix is a genius. <laughs> okay, well, because of my failed attempt at the audio book, which um, I'm going to blame me for because you can't, you can't by point fingers at kids can you <laughs> um then i'm gonna say uh, i'm gonna say the film with a view to reading the book soon <laughs> okay well thank you very much for listening and uh, thanks to everyone involved and we'll leave you with the genial andy goulding a room is far more than four walls and a door with wall-to-wall carpet or laminate floor you can tart it up with a nice lick of paint but avoid it still is and a room it still ain't the things we put in there help give it a label 
A bed makes a bedroom and hay makes a stable. Yet still it falls short of unique personality. Not yet a room, just a slice of banality. What makes it a room, in my humble opinion, are those who have chosen it as their dominion, filling it daily with part of themselves that does more for the decor than trinkets on shelves. A body devoid of a heart is a shell, and a room without heart is a dead thing as well. Deprive it of laughter, of love and of movement, and that's not a room, it's a room for improvement. to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, with additional music from the Room original soundtrack and excerpts from the Room audiobook, published by Little Brown and Company. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing the links to our show, or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're joining the Brat Pack in John Hughes' 1985 comedy drama, The Breakfast Club. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. I think it might be heaven. Mm-hmm.